Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs okay. Spiritual Tools. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're talking about the, the Parshas. The, the, this is the part of the Torah where we leave Egypt. And it's really, in, in many ways, the core of the, the whole Torah because, you know, all, all of life is really about getting to that place of of redemption, about the perfection of the world. And the the model for all of that really is is leaving Egypt. So everything is really contained in in leaving Egypt. Um, and there's a classic Torah from the Kotzka Rebbe that, that I want to just open with. One of the um one of the languages of redemption um, that God uses is that he says he's going to take us from um from Tachas, from underneath the Sivlos, the burdens of Egypt. And the Kotzka Rebbe says something really phenomenal. He says that the word Sivlos, which we would um, translate as burden, comes from the Hebrew word Savlanut, which means patience. And so now when you put it together, one of the, way, one of the ways God is taking us out of Egypt is that he's making us impatient with our own exile. He's making us impatient with our own servitude. And then that will motivate us and drive us to want the redemption more. Now that's 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 an amazing thing. Now let's let's go deeper. Because the Medrash says gives a, a very visual kind of um amazing way of, of sort of wrapping your mind around what it meant that the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. They said it's like a, a fetus inside the, the womb of an animal. So, and that when God took us out with a strong hand, right? It's like he reached in and pulled out this fetus and delivered the nation of Israel. And of course, we, we are the fetus in that, in that construct. Now, Rav Frimmer points out something really, really interesting, which is that when a fetus is inside of its mother, it has no insight that anything could be otherwise. Do you understand? Do, do, think about this, because this is psychologically, this is very, very deep. There's no, as we would say in Gomorrah, there's no Hava Mina. There's no, there's no thought that it could be anything else. When a fetus is, in, is inside its mother, that's all it can be. So this is why the Kutzka Rebbe is saying that God is making us impatient with our exile. Because our impatience is tantamount to us having insight into the fact that we are in exile to begin with. Do you understand? In other words... As my father would say, there can be no change without insight. If you don't even realize that you're a slave, there can be no getting out of your slavery. 
So the first step is this insight that things can be otherwise. So, so this, is, this is something really useful in our lives. So what I would ask everyone to do is think about the different situations in your life and ask yourself, does this have to be like that? You know, you go in through your business life, through your relationships, go through your family life, go through your spiritual goals and ask yourself where I am right now. Does it have to be like this? Because this will trigger insight and maybe the answer is yes. But the, maybe the answer will be this sort of like sort of like mind blowing. No, like wait a second, it, it doesn't have to be like that. I have the capacity to transform this situation. Okay, now I want to give you a practical tool that I've been using in my life. And it might sound like I'm changing the subject. I'm absolutely not changing the subject. And it's a very, very small thing. And you might, it might sound laughable. It might be like, what? This, how is this going to change my life? But I've seen the effects of this in my life, and this is something that I've taken seriously, and I'm telling you that this is a real tool, okay? So here it is. If you're in your house and you see something on the floor, like there's a tissue that didn't quite make it into the waste paper basket, it's like sitting on the floor next to it, or there's some, you know, some little piece of food on the floor in the kitchen, don't walk by it. Bend down, pick it up, put it in the garbage. And you say, how is that going to change my life? <laughs> Maybe it will be, make my house 2% cleaner, but how is that going to change my life? And I'm telling you it's changed my life, and, and I'm going to tell you how and why. Because here's what most people do. They walk by something like that, they notice it, it's, it's annoying to them. And then they keep on walking and they go, oh, I got to pick that up. And they keep on walking. If you stop and you pick it up, and the, the glory of this, like the genius of this, is that it's so easy to do and you will have a 100% success rate doing it, okay? Is that you stop, you pick it up, you put it in the garbage. And what you just did was you just accomplished something very tangible, and over time, what is going to happen is you are going to empower yourself to show that you can make change and you can make change in the moment. Now, how, what's, the, what's the bigger picture here? What's the, what's, the, what's the end zone? What's the goal line? Is that when you have a thought, I have to make that call or I have to write that email, most people then just continue on with their life like walking by that piece of paper. They just continue on with their life. But now, because you're so used to accomplishing things in the moment and you're so empowered, you go, I have to make that call. And you make the call. You say to yourself, I can do it. I have to write that email. Then you write the email because you now, success feeds on success. And even something so small 
can lead to this level of empowerment where you bring it into the other activities of your life. So, so let's talk further about success. And, and we're going to tie all of this into Moshe, and I'm going to tell you this unbelievable medrash, which um, is not well known and changes the entire story of leaving Egypt. So, so my son told me something that, that, he, that, that he read, he shared with me, um, that made a big impression on him. And, and, and I want to use it as a springboard um, to, discuss, to discuss more of what we've been discussing, okay? Here it is. When it comes to running a company, it's not a race, it's a marathon. Now, th- there's a lot contained in that. When it comes to running a company, and by the way, everyone who is alive is a CEO. You are the CEO of your own company. <laughs> you incorporated, okay? So you are, every, every single one of us is a CEO, okay? So when it, when it comes to running a business, it's not a race, it's a marathon. All right, now I want to build on that because... There's, there's a lot that we can learn about our own lives from this. And w- what, what I feel is going on, what I, what I think happens with most people, whether, whether you have insight into this or not, is that most people are working towards certain goals. All of us are working towards certain goals. But our attitude, and again, even if we don't have insight into this, I think this is accurate. Our attitude is that it's a no until you get a yes. In other words, I I want this certain thing, but I don't have it yet. So it's a no until it's a yes. Okay? Now, that's a very dangerous way to think about life. It's a very dangerous way to go through life. That everything is a no until it's a yes. Um, there's a story that, that I heard from Rabbi Pesach Krohn that, that I really like. It's a really simple story, but there, there's a lot here, and, and we're going to connect it to what we just learned, okay? So he was in the airport, and um, you know there are different people working uh, on behalf of the airlines doing crowd control, you know, asking you, you know, where are you flying to, and this and that, because they want to direct you so that you're in the proper line, okay? So... So one of these people asks uh, Rabbi Krohn, are you first class? And he said, yeah, I'm first class. I'm flying economy, but I'm first class, right? So they just wanted to direct him to the first class line, right? But he, he heard a different question there, which is, are you a winner? And he's like, yeah, I'm a winner. So how are you thinking of yourself? And again, Life is not a race, it's a marathon. How are you thinking of yourself on the way to achieving whatever goal you're on your way to achieve? Is it a no? In other words, I'm a loser until I prove otherwise, until I get a yes. Is it a no until I get a yes? 
Or are you first class? <laughs> and it's a marathon. And you are on the way to a yes. In other words, you, you already are a winner. And you know what the amazing thing is? And I, I, I keep on emphasizing this point. This is such an, an essential point. So are you a winner or are you a loser? You know what the answer is? It's whatever you decide you are. That's an amazing thing. Most people think that I'm only a winner if I get this position or I, I get acknowledged by this organization or I'm friends with this person. Why? Why hold your self-esteem hostage to external forces? Why? You don't have to. You can decide independently, I'm a winner, and it's a, it's a yes, and this is a marathon. It's up to you. Now, let me tell you the, the, the depths to which this can go. And I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it. I wish I, I had it in front of me, but it's one of my favorite old-time things um, from Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. And it's in the story, The Simpleton and the Sophisticate, right? And he's talking about, and of course, this simpleton, that's an English word. It's, a, it's, it's got a bit of a negative connotation, unfortunately. But it's someone who's just, you know, doesn't put on any airs, right? He's just someone who has a, a muna pashuta, as we say, you know, simple faith. He's, you know, really just just, uh, just simple in that way. And, and to quote Steve Jobs, simple is hard, by the way. <laughs> that, that's the irony, that if you, if you really want to be simple in the way that Rebbe Nachman talks about, you, you have to be quite sophisticated to be that simple. That's kind of the funny thing. But anyway, at, at a certain point, you're able to refine yourself and, and truly become simple in, in, in the best, best version of that. So this, this man is very, very poor, and he has basically nothing. And he says to his wife, he says, bring me some ale. And she brings him a glass of water. And he goes, ah, this ale tastes delicious. And then he says, now bring me some wine. And she brings him some more water. And he goes, ah, this wine is fantastic. <laughs> and then he, she, he says, bring me a steak. And she brings him a piece of bread. And he bites the bread and he goes, ah, this steak is delicious. And then he says, bring me my silk caftan coat, you know, the very fine coat. And she brings him this sort of rough worker's sheepskin coat, which is the only one that he had. And he goes, ah, it's the finest silk. So, so it's, Rabbi Nachman is making a very great point here, which is, and, and I think that he's, bringing it, in my opinion, he's bringing it to the point of absurdity in order to emphasize the point that you get to decide what experience you're having in this life. And this is obviously a very extreme version of it by design. But he's trying to tell you, you have that power. Now that's, that's an amazing, that's an amazing thing. So, so let's say, I want to just go into a little bit more detail about how important it is to understand that, that it's a negative thing to go through life, that it's a no, 
until it's a yes. Because you're then you're living most of your life in this place of no. Now, let's let's sort of widen the the perspective slightly. Let's say you're actually very successful. However you define that, okay? How many yeses? Like let's say you're having a great year, okay? How many yeses come over the course of an entire year? I mean, how many times do you get married in one year, right? <laughs> it's like, how many yeses are there in a year? How many kids do you have in one year? <laughs> how many jobs do you get in one year? Right? So, in, in other words, what, what I'm trying to tell you is that even in the best case scenario where you're like really scoring and you're like absolutely like quote unquote successful, you know, in whatever societal terms, there are only a few yeses that are coming your way. So after your yes, if you go, okay, now I need my next yes and it's a no until a yes, you're living most of your life in this state of no. Unless you decide that life is a, a marathon and you're on your way to a yes. Now, I just heard a story. Uh, someone close to me said that, that they're working with someone who was working for years on a major financial deal. Major, major, you know, major, big, big, tremendous money deal. Okay. They were working for years on it and it just came through. So what that tells me is that they were working for years on something and it happened. You know, all of life, all of contemporary society is, is shortening our, our attention span, right? Like everyone's got ADD these days, right? That's one of the effects of social media is that it's literally giving everyone ADD. And when you have a short attention span, you can't, you don't, you don't have the perspective to understand that, that God doesn't have a short attention span. God has a very long attention span. Super long, super long, like billions and billions and billions of years. God can concentrate on absolutely everything and not get distracted. He doesn't get distracted for a moment while he's concentrating on trillions and trillions and trillions of things. It's phenomenal, right? This is reason number seven trillion, how we are not like God, right? So, so there are yeses that are waiting for us. But we have to shift our perspective. And we can't go through life saying it's a no until it's a yes. My my daughter just like she she was she took this course and she had a paper and the, the whole course was one paper, right? And she had tremendous anxiety. It was really like 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 a like a real like turmoil like getting this paper in. 
And she just got it in, like right before Shabbos. And she did a great job. And, and I told her, I said, I want you to remember this. Because I want you to remember that just because there are certain things that are very difficult for you in life, it doesn't mean that there isn't a happy ending. And I want to expand upon that because this is true for all of us. It says in Pirkei Avos that all of us, every Jew and the righteous among the nations, have a share in the world to come. Okay? In fact, the Rambam says one of the reasons why there's so many mitzvahs. Did you ever wonder why there's so many mitzvahs? Listen to this unbelievable answer. The Rambam says there's so many mitzvahs because it's impossible so that it should be impossible to get through life without doing some. <laughs> and therefore being rewarded for them. And therefore, you can't get out of this world without earning an olam haba, a world to come. Okay, the size of your olam haba is dependent upon your level of effort. As it says in another place in Pirkei Avos, to the effort goes the reward. But no one gets out of this lifetime without some reward, including the righteous among the nations. Okay. So, so what's the point? The point is that each one of our lives has a happy ending. Because each one of our lives ends with Olam Haba, with the, with the next world. And it says that if you take all the pleasures of your life, just wrap them all together, every pleasure you ever had, right? One moment in the next world is greater than all the pleasures that you achieved or experienced in this life. So all of our lives have a happy ending. That's number one. Number two, on the macro level, human civilization has a happy ending because Mashiach comes. There's a redemption and the world is evolving toward perfection. So both on the individual level and on the macro level, there's a happy ending. And, you know, by the way, one of my just favorite fun facts is that the philosopher Schopenhauer hated the Jews. And the reason why he hated the Jews so much is because he said, we gave the world optimism. <laughs> Can you imagine such a thing? <laughs> it was like, how dare they tell the lie of optimism <laughs> and put optimism and give people hope in this hopeless world. But he was wrong. This world is not hopeless. God, who's good, created this world, and he created it with a happy ending. That was God's idea. That's not us projecting our wishful thinking on history. That's God's idea. In his goodness, he makes everything end well, which is appropriate. So what I'm trying to tell you is the following. All of our lives have a happy ending. All of human history has a happy ending. You can choose to live that happy ending right now. <laughs> Let me say it a different way. 
There, there are many people who do this, and I think they all kind of discovered independently because I don't think anyone told my youngest daughter this, and she does this all the time. She's a big reader, and maybe some of you out there do this too, which is that the first thing she does when she gets a book is she reads the last five pages. <laughs> there, 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 it's a whole subculture of people who will read the end of the book before they start the book because they want to know how does the book end. And if the book has a happy ending, then even during the scary parts, they know there's a happy ending and they can just, you know, they don't have so much anxiety. They can just take a sigh of relief because they know it's going to work out. We can do that too. Because in our own lives, all of us are the lead characters in that story. And what I'm telling you is, is there's a happy ending. (laughs) So you know there's a happy ending. You can live that happy ending right now. That doesn't mean you should work less hard in terms of the amount that you try to accomplish in this lifetime. But you can take the scary parts a little less seriously and be a little less invested in the negativity because you know ultimately there is a happy ending. And I'll give you an example of that, which I think is super cool. And it happens during the Pesach Seder. And, you know, there's a halachic curiosity that's smack dab in the middle of the Pesach Seder. Okay? And it's the following thing. You know, we are very careful not to make interruptions halachically. It's called a hefsik. Okay? So I'll give you an example when you wash your hands for bread, you don't speak between saying and everybody knows that, right? Why? Why don't you speak? You don't want to make a hefsek. You don't want to make an interruption, right? Everyone's very careful about that. Um, if you study the laws of davening, of praying, you'll see that there are certain sections of the davening. You're, you're not supposed to say amen because you're going to make an interruption, okay? So, all sorts of things about uh, guarding against interruptions. So with that in mind, with how careful we are when it comes to these things, isn't it interesting, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but isn't it interesting that we begin the Pesach Seder in the Haggadah, right? We say the first half of Hallel. Hallel is a major prayer. That's the major prayer of thanks in Judaism. We do the first half of Hallel, and then we take a dinner break. Do you ever wonder about that? Like, what's going on? And then, and by the way, sadly, some people never come back after the dinner break. You know? And then after dinner, you say, where, oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, I was in the middle of Hallel. And then you pick up Hallel again. Now, what is going on with that? So what I'm going to tell you is the explanation from Rabbi Soloveitchik. It's an awesome explanation. And it gets to this idea of experiencing, if you know that there's a happy ending, you can live that happy ending right now in your life. So here's, here's a halachic example of this in the Pesach Seder. So he says the reason why we separate Halil into two parts um, is not just because there is a concession to people's hunger. You know, it's quick enough to finish off Halil, right? We, we, we didn't have to do it that way. Um, it's because really we're thanking God for two major things. That's why we're kind of making a separation within Hallel, to give it two parts, two components. 
The first half of Hallel, leading up to dinner, is thanking God for bringing us out of Egypt. Okay? Now, you ready for this? The second part of Hallel, until the end of the Seder, is thanking God for having brought the final redemption. Now, there was a very big time-bending thought there. I want to make sure you heard what I just said. The second part of Hallel, till the end of the Seder, is we're thanking God for having brought the redemption. But the redemption didn't come yet. Exactly. We're already celebrating an event that hasn't occurred yet. Do you understand? We so know that Hashem is going to keep His word. See, I'll tell you something just in my life. I, you know, I don't want to, you know, flatter myself or compliment myself or whatever it is about, oh, I believe so much. I don't want to do that. But I do believe. I really do. I honestly do. And I, at a certain point, I asked myself a question. I said, why do you believe so much? And you know why? You know why I think I do? Because my father was so almost obsessed with, with a certain point, which was about keeping the importance of keeping your word. And he would say dozens of times when I was growing up, have I ever made you a promise I didn't keep? He said that to me. I can't even tell you how many times my father said that to me. The importance of keeping your word. And he's asking me, have I ever made you a promise I didn't keep? And I realized, you know, that must be why I believe in these prophecies in the Torah so much, in God's word so much. Because if my father kept his word, how much more so does God keep his word? So, so we know that the redemption is going to come. And if we already know the redemption is going to come, it's appropriate to celebrate the redemption that's going to come even before it comes. And that's what we're doing on the second part of the Seder every single year. So what I'm saying is, there's a happy ending in your life. We should all live long. It's Olam Abba. There's a happy ending to history. Things end well. If you know they end well, you can already be tapping into the happiness and, and, and doing it right now. You know, I'll give you another example of this. I heard this from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Olive Shalom. And there's an occasion to do this in a beautiful way every Shabbos. So how do you do this every Shabbos? Because the Messianic period, right, the, the, the period of redemption is in, in Hebrew, there's a phrase for it called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, right? The Messianic period is known as the day that will be all Shabbos. And by the way, I think the, it's the Ramban and, and others say there's seven days of creation and each one of those days stand for this a thousand years. And so the seventh day, the 7,000th year period, which is the Messianic period, correlates with Shabbos. And so there you see, there you see the correlation between Shabbos and the Messianic period in the beginning of creation, right? 
So, so what Rabbi Moshe Shapiro says is that Erev Shabbos, you see soul work. And it's like you're heading into the Messianic period. Like, like, like when Shabbos comes, that's a miniature of this global phenomena of Mashiach coming. Because the Messianic period is called the day that will be all Shabbos. So every time you head into Shabbos, you can cease your work feeling as though you're completely done. Like the world is done. Like now you can head into this like sort of like miniature of Olam Haba, which is Shabbos. Okay. So now I want to go deeper. And I want to tell you how all of this ties together. Everything that we've been talking about. With um with the redemption from Egypt, and and how Moshe experiences all the challenges uh, that Moshe had to face and go through, which again we have to see ourselves in this. Now I think I, I mentioned to you uh, this cartoon that my my son has over his desk. It's so good, um. And it's on the subject that we've been talking about, success and, and, and it being a, not a race, but a marathon. So there are these two side-by-side graphs. And, and this cartoon says, what is success, right? And then it says, there's this one line uninterruptedly pointing straight at an angle, straight up. And it says, what people think success is. And then right next to that is this windy, twisty line that goes down and up, and it's completely knotted up. And then at the very end, it points upward, and it says what success actually is. <laughs> so getting there is complicated. And that's this idea of the marathon. Getting there is complicated. But because it's complicated, like the turmoil my daughter was having over her paper, because it's complicated doesn't mean that it isn't successful in the end. Right? And that's why it's so important to judge yourself as success and to avoid this trap of living through life, that it's a no until it's a yes. Because a lot of times, it's just a windy way to the yes, and you can live that happy ending during the windy way. And certainly, certainly, that describes our leaving Egypt. Because it was very twisty, and it was very, very complicated. And now I want to tell you that thing I promised to tell you, that Medrash, which is changes our entire understanding of leaving Egypt. So, so as I mentioned to you last week, we talked about um, the whole um, uh, experience Moshe had getting, getting the instructions at the burning bush to leave Egypt, Right? And if you read that section in the Torah where God tells Moshe, take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them back here. Remember, the burning bush was on Mount Sinai. Take the Jews out of Egypt, bring them back here to Mount Sinai. I'm going to give them the Torah. Um, 
you can read that little section in the Torah in, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, maybe a couple dozen verses. It's not very long. But the Talmud tells us that that conversation between God and Moshe took place over seven days, which is an amazing piece of information. Moshe was saying no to God for seven days. And so the question is, why was Moshe saying no to God for seven days? So the explanation that I heard that I love is because Moshe was telling God, let this be the final redemption. Because God alluded to the fact that this was going to be one in a series of redemptions. And Moshe was saying, no, make this the final redemption. And seemingly God was like on board or at least open to it, right? And of course, the, the, the support that I want to give that God was open to this being the final redemption is that we know that had Moshe brought the children of Israel into the land itself, right? That that would have been the final redemption. So seemingly that was on the table. Okay. So Moshe, empowered with this kind of like, this is it, guys, goes and he confronts Paro and he says, you know, let my people go um, so that they can serve God. By the way, we have to just pause there for a second because this is a, a major thing. And, you know, if you want a sort of like a, a window on the zeitgeist, okay, meaning to say uh, an insight into how society understands the Torah and who we are and who God is and everything like that. I think that this is a very nice little um, case in point. Most people quote Moshe as saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And boy, oh boy, is that not what he said. <laughs> he, he did say that, but he didn't say that. What do I mean? That, that phrase has been very carefully edited because there's one more word at the end of it in the Torah that's used every single time that Moshe says, let my people go, which is so that they can serve God. In other words, what's our insight into where society is holding? That everything is about me and it's about my freedom and my autonomy, and don't tread on me, let my people go, right? But, but that's not what it says. In other words, how do we fulfill ourselves in the ultimate way? By acknowledging that we are part of a grander, exalted, totally divine, infinite structure. We're a piece of it. And part of that is taking all the gifts that God gives us and, and using our free choice and living our best life and all the rest. That's part of it. But it's within the context of attaching ourselves to the infinite and serving God. And a person will never be totally fulfilled unless they connect to the source of their own being. So, so I just think that it's very instructive. And like I say, a great case in point 
that Moshe is severely edited when he's quoted as just saying, let my people go and not let my people go so that they can serve God. You get a, it's a, it's worth, it's worth thinking about. That's worth thinking about. Anyway, Moshe, you know, is negotiating with God for seven days. Let this be the last redemption. He goes to Egypt. He tells Paro that, that, um, let my people go so that they can serve God. And Paro makes everything dramatically worse for them, dramatically worse for them. Now, remember, they had to make a quota of bricks. We had to make a quota of bricks, right? And um, it was very, very hard to meet that quota. And after Moshe shows up, Paro says, now all the straw that we used to give you in order for you to meet that quota of bricks that you could hardly meet at all, we're not going to give you that straw anymore. You're going to have to gather all that straw, which was very hard to do, and also make that quota of bricks. In other words, the job we had before was impossible to do, and now a new level of impossibility had been added to our impossible task. It was really bad. It was really, really bad. And Moshe becomes seemingly, like, discouraged. And now here is the medrash that I've been promising to tell you. And you can see it with your own eyes. It's at the end of Sefer Shmos, or rather at the end of Parsha Shmos in the Ramban. The Ramban brings it, right? One of our greatest commentators. And that's after things got worse. You ready for this? Moshe left Egypt for six months. Months. And this is such a dramatic bombshell that, you know, I recommend you see it with your own eyes so that you can just go, whoa, there it is. That's what he said. It's right there. The end of Parsha Shmos in the Ramban. Okay. So what does that mean? Moshe left Egypt? for a six-month period? And there are different midrashim that the Ramban brings, and one of them is three months. But, but it seems like Moshe just went AWOL. So how do we understand that, right? So there are a lot of dangers here in trying to analyze this medrash because it will involve psychoanalyzing Moshe Rabbeinu, right? By the way, Moshe Rabbeinu is gematria. Those words, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher, is gematria 613. I don't know if you know that. An amazing, amazing thing. So I would be very afraid to psychoanalyze Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> like the greatest human that ever lived, right? So, but we need to understand what this medrash is and what was going through Moshe's mind seemingly. So so with that sort of like um, caveat that we can't really understand what what was going on with Moshe. And by the way, just to emphasize that point, when tzaddikim 
argue with each other because there have been sort of like um, famous fights among tzaddikim over the years, um, holy people. Uh, you shouldn't take sides. Don't don't take sides of on one tzaddik against another tzaddik. It's it's a losing endeavor and it's a trap and you should 100% avoid it. And I'm going to tell you a story about this. Again, this is all under the category of being very fearful of trying to understand tzaddikim and especially the greatest of all the tzaddikim, Moshe Rabbeinu. But I think this story is very instructive and I heard it from Reb Shlomo. Uh, Rebbe Nachman, during his lifetime, had had opposition. And his greatest opponent was someone named the Shpoli Zaidi. Um, and when, when Rebbe Nachman was nifter, uh, one of the followers of the Shpoli Zaidi said, I have some fantastic news for you. Your enemy, Rebbe Nachman, is, is, has passed. And he said, What? My enemy? He said, I loved Rebbe Nachman. And you know, the follower was shaken. He says, but you, you, you were opposing him in like so many ways. He said, you don't understand. He said, I knew that Rebbe Nachman's neshama was really most meant for a later generation. And what I wanted to make sure was that he didn't complete everything he needed to do so that he could come back for this later generation who was going to need him the most. And anyone who's learned the teachings of Rebbe Nachman knows that this generation has benefited from his teachings and his psychological insights and his teachings about happiness and his his the strength that he's given people to fight depression in in the most awesome way. So here it looked like from from this like simple follower that 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 the Shpoli Zaidi didn't like Rebbe Nachman, God forbid, where the Shpoli Zaidi had such exalted kavanas in terms of helping the Jewish people. Uh, how can you know what, what he had in mind? How could you know what he had in mind? Which is, which is exactly the point. So how do we know what Moshe Rabbeinu has in mind when he leaves Egypt at this critical point, right at the beginning of the redemption, for up to six months? How are we ever to understand that? So on a very simple level, you could say he got completely overwhelmed, totally stressed out. Okay. I don't know if you can say such a thing, but, you know, if we're going to run through a number of different possibilities, you'd have to include that. And we'd have to include that under the category of understanding that the people in the Torah are human beings and that we mythologize them at our own danger because there's this negative aspect to mythologizing Tzaddikim. And let me explain myself. The person can think, oh, I have so much Yerushamayim. I'm such a believer, and I believe that this Chacham is so exalted that I'll never reach his level. 
But do you know what the hidden message is in that? He's so exalted, I don't have to do any of those things. That's what, that's, there's a little Yetzirah in there. Believe me, believe me. You make someone too great, what you're doing is sending yourself a message that I'm off the hook. And the Tanah Debei Eliyahu tells all of us, every single person has to ask themselves the question, every single one of us, every day, when will my deeds reach the level of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov? So, so maybe Moshe just got completely overwhelmed. And how can we dare say such a thing? Because he was a human being. And we can't lose sight of the fact that he was a human being. One possibility. And by the way, just to relate that to you and me, if Moshe Rabbeinu can become overwhelmed, what about all of us? So we have to be patient with ourselves. Human beings are like, you know, we're kind of built to get through a certain number of years, but, you know, even a car, which is a piece of machinery, needs checkups. So what about us? We're just kind of flesh and blood. How much more so us? You know, we're vulnerable creatures. So if we're experiencing the stresses and some of the indignities of life and they kind of stop us in our tracks for a while. We just have to be patient with ourselves and our own humanity. Okay. But I want to suggest another explanation. And this is more in keeping with the way we've been learning the fact that Moshe was saying no to God for seven days, saying, let this be the final redemption. What I would like to suggest is That Moshe, so to speak, when things went immediately wrong and things got immediately worse for the Jewish people, that Moshe went on strike. Moshe left the job not because he was overwhelmed, but because he was arguing, God, this has to be the last redemption and it can't go down like this. It, 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 it can't be like this. It can't be where everything gets worse. And after a period of time, this is in the same Medrash that the Ramban brings, God tells Moshe, in the Midian desert, he says, go back to Egypt. You're going to see. Things are going to go quickly now. And in fact, they do go much more smoothly. At this point, after this whole disaster with the bricks and everything getting much worse for the Jews, now the plagues start happening and they start happening like clockwork leading up to the redemption. So another way, another way of understanding Moshe leaving, and again, you see the great heroism of Moshe Rabbeinu standing up for the Jewish people in the most amazing way. 
Okay. So I have a theory in life, which is if you can boil something down, like when you want to analyze human behavior, if you can boil something down to two reasons, it's already both of them. <laughs> okay, it's my own little private theory. Just a question of what percentage of one and what percentage of the other. Again, I don't know if we can apply this to Moshe Rabbeinu, but, but, um, but there we go. All right, so we're going to wrap it up right now. It's not a race, it's a marathon. And, you know, you're first class. You might be, a, you might be flying economy, but you're first class. And all of us have the capacity to live the happy ending that awaits all of us. We all have Olam Abba. The redemption happens. We have the ability to take that happy ending, the end of the book that we already know, and to live that happy ending right now, to live that yes right now, to drink that water and go, ah, this wine is unbelievable. We have that power right now. And let's all together empower ourselves, know that we can make positive change, not be fetuses in the womb of this animal where there's no understanding that things can be otherwise, but to ask ourselves that question in every area of our lives, does it have to be this way? Does it have to be this way? And what can I do to alter it if it doesn't have to be this way? And let's bring that great light to the world, to our own lives, and to serve God with joy. What follows now are some questions and answers. What the rabbis use for the midrash. Okay, so... Precisely because I don't see it in the Torah. Okay, great. So, so you're asking a great question, which is, how are we to understand midrashim in general? And... You have to start with, with, with the following, which is that every Midrash is true. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. It's not, it's not as simple as, 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 as I just made it sound. Which is to say, there is a truth in every Midrash. Now, in some instances, you can take the Midrash literally, and that the event they're describing actually happened. In other instances, the event that the rabbis are describing is by design, not true. But they have encoded a truth in that presentation, in that story. And that truth is true. And that truth will give you an insight into the situation that you would not have had before. And it's 100% true. So, so again, every midrash is true. It's just a question of what level is that truth operating on? On the most literal level, that the story itself actually happened, but wasn't reported by the Torah? Or that there's some insight there that they're telling you you will not be able to understand the events of the Torah unless you incorporate this additional point that we're providing for you with this story. So the question is, um, on the one hand, uh, 
we're told that we have to strive to, that our deeds should match those of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. On the other hand, there's a, a classic Hasidic story that Reb Zusha said that, um, you know, at the end of 120, I'm, I'm not afraid that the heavenly court is going to say to me, why weren't you like Moshe Rabbeinu? I'm, 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 I'm terrified that they're going to say to me, why weren't you like Zusha? In other words, why weren't you yourself if you could have just achieved your own potential? That, that, that would have been the highest, greatest thing. So maybe one way to reconcile those two things is that the only way that we're ever going to achieve our own personal greatness is if we strive to be like the greatest people who ever lived, which means that we have an aspect of the greatest people that ever lived within us. You know, um, Reb Shlomo said in the name of one of the, one of the Rebbes that imagine in your mind right now who you think Avraham Avinu really was. Imagine just who was Abraham. Just imagine who he was. Now, you ready for this? This Rebbe says, you are a million times greater than that. And the true greatness of Avraham Avinu you'll never, ever be able to even conceive. It's, it's a very powerful teaching because it shows you that our scale is so off. The, the, the scale of everything is radically, quantumly higher than what we give it credit for. And, and then the true scale of the things that we hold to be even higher than that are just absolutely off the charts. But again, Reb Nachman said that one of the reasons why, why Adam ate from the tree is because he didn't take himself seriously enough. That's part and parcel of us not really understanding the exalted scale of everything is because we don't take ourselves seriously enough. And of course, the counter to that, I heard from Rabbi Green, who was quoting Oscar Wilde, of all people. Oscar Wilde said that life is too important to take seriously. So, <laughs> so on the one hand, ironically, the way to, take, to get the most out of life is not to take it too seriously, but that allows you to take it more seriously, because otherwise you can be paralyzed and crippled by every single downturn. So on the one hand, you have to take it less seriously in order to take it more seriously. It's, it's, um, it's a bit of a tightrope walk, but, you know, if, you, if you've got good friends and teachers, you can get it done.